0: Listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. All right, well, welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South. Very good to be here. We are starting a new series this morning, a series called We Don't Talk About. We're going to be in this series for the next six weeks. You know, no matter what you were thinking about or dealing with when you walked in this morning, you can know this. Every time you get up in the morning, you can know that you are more loved um, than you can ever imagine, and that if you're in Christ, that all of your sin has been completely forgiven by the death of Jesus in your place, that he has lifted you up and he's bringing you to the heights where God is in never-ending, indescribable joy. That's why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. So, we're embarking this morning on a new series, as I said. um, It's different than one we've done before, uh, but I trust this series will be faith-strengthening and hopefully helpful for all of us. We Don't Talk About, the the series title is, for many of you know, is a a little bit of a tribute to one of the most popular movies of the year so far, the Disney movie uh, Encanto and the, the most popular song in that film called We Don't Talk About Bruno. Pretty sure that my kids know the lyrics to that song by heart. Maybe you've heard it too. Sing it along in the car. Um, one of the key themes of that Disney movie is um, what happens when a family or a community just refuses to talk about something that they really need to talk about, um, and that how that can actually do more damage to the members of the community um, than the issues themselves. So without giving any spoilers in the movie, if you plan to see it, um, it does focus a lot on the devastating effects of what we call generational trauma within families. Um, And we'll focus on this series uh, a little bit on what can occur, the damage that can occur in the church when we avoid talking about certain things um, because they're too hard or they might cause offense. Those who are most likely to experience this kind of damage... Are, are on the younger side of the spectrum, which includes all of you here, right? Um, roughly 60%, and this is a statistic from um, 2011, uh, 60% of high school students uh, from Christian families, once they graduate and start working or attending university, they will stop attending any local church, and many of them will leave the faith Altogether, sixty percent. That's a pretty sobering statistic, um, and it, it's it's a trend that only seems to be increasing as we as we go. Uh, today, we're going to look more carefully at a more recent trend among younger people, but and some older people as well. And it's the trend of, of called, well, it has many names, but we're going to go with the popular name at the moment, which is deconstruction. Uh, people are, if you go online, uh, you you can you Google the word deconstruction. Uh, go on Instagram, TikTok, you'll find a lot of channels and accounts just dedicated to forming communities of people who grew up in the church, who grew up with a faith, typically a more conservative evangelical faith, who have now left the faith of their parents, left the faith of their childhood, and found freedom in, um, in doubting or in, um, in a sort of a deconstructed or sort of um, customized faith of their own making. So that's what we're talking about today. Just in the weeks ahead, just to let you know for, for if, if some of these topics may be interesting, some of them may be triggering to some of you. Um, and so I want to give you a heads up. Next week, we'll have Simon Jackson from City Light North Adelaide. will be here to, tell, uh, to talk about mental health um, and the gospel. We're going to be looking at um, gender equality uh, on Mother's Day. Um, In a couple of weeks, we're looking at sexuality. We're looking at uh, food and alcohol, and we're going to do a a message on politics, just in time for a little election coming up. Um, And then after that, we've got our birthday, our belated birthday happening on the 5th of June. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Uh, But as I said today, we are um, changing the fact that we don't talk enough about doubt and deconstruction in the church. Um, what do we do with the fact that lots of people have questions or hurt that they are working through, hurt that for many of people, they received and experienced in the church or from other Christians. Um, in conservative evangelical churches like ours, churches that base their beliefs and practice on the, on the authority of the Bible, as God's word, are Our tendency can be to treat doubts and questioning as sinful, as an example of unbelief, which means if you're doubting anything, you just need to get over it, believe what the Bible says, and move on. Doubt your doubts, believe your beliefs. I think there was a song that used to say that growing up. Um, Be careful of what you listen to, just stick, stick with safe Christian content, and you will be fine. Now, If you happen to attend or listen to a sermon from a, say, more progressive church, you'll hear a slightly different, well, actually quite a different message, something along those lines of this, that doubt is an essential, necessary step in faith, that certainty about spiritual things is either foolish or sinful. Um, Peter Enns, a former evangelical scholar turned progressive, wrote a book in 2016 called The Sin of Certainty. And in these spaces, the beliefs that you might have heard or received from your parents in traditional churches and spaces must be, must be taken apart, must be examined, must be deconstructed so that what we're left with is a faith that is now useful, say, to address the social concerns of today, the injustice that we see in the world today. But since we are, broadly speaking, a conservative evangelical church, I I want us to press in this morning to talking about doubt. Why is it that so many young adults from Christian families end up breaking up with the church and the faith of their parents? Is it something that we've done, something that we've said? And in in some cases, yes. But more often, I think it's something that we haven't said. Have a listen to a young writer by the name of Ian, and his story is probably a common one. He writes this. He says, the Christian tradition I grew up in for all the wonderful things it gave me was not prepared for a generation of kids with access to high-speed internet. Not the critiques of the Bible we discovered. On, not that the critiques of the Bible we discovered online were new, but they were now at the fingertips of curious folks who grew up in evangelical bubbles. Folks like me. The answers given in church seem shallow compared to the legitimate critiques that were a Google search or a YouTube video away. Or consider this account of a young woman called Sarah, um, who, as told by Pastor A.J. Swoboda in his book called *After Doubt*. Sarah was raised in a conservative Christian home. In high school, she confessed to her parents about having unwanted sexual desires. Listening sympathetically, they believed their best recourse was counseling, Bible study, and weekly prayer. Sarah's desires never disappeared. In college, she encountered a campus ministry that embraced non traditional expressions of sexual identity sarah's desires were affirmed and they suggested that her upbringing had caused her deep emotional and spiritual trauma as her childhood theology disintegrated so did her relationship with her parents now ian and sarah's stories are not identical but they've got some things in common both grew up with conservative parents and church communities they seem to have grown up in wonderful good healthy nurturing communities Though no family is perfect, there's no indication of dysfunction. What I'm saying is these families could be virtually any family in our church or in similar churches. In Ian's case, it was podcasts and YouTube videos that seemed to be the catalyst for his doubt and deconstruction. For Sarah, it was a progressive community that affirmed her desires in ways that her parents never could. Both of them found themselves in a crisis of faith and doubt for a similar reason. They were both captivated by a better story. So they thought. Deconstruction is is something that we all do to some degree. So I want to think about this for a minute. What is deconstruction? It is part of growing up. Sometimes it happens through careful consideration. It's, you know, like, Maybe maybe you've chosen a career path that's different than the one your parents wanted you to choose. Uh, Writer Rachel Held Evans described deconstruction as a little bit like taking items out of your pantry and looking at each one to see if it's still useful, it's still good, it hasn't gone past the, the use by date, keeping the good ones and then chucking the bad ones out. Sometimes, though, deconstruction is more of a sudden crisis. It's triggered by trauma from a childhood experience, um, a response to events in the world, or sometimes uh, triggered by peer pressure. Um, and it happens because, for, for a good thing, good reason, every person created in God's image has what we call moral agency. Moral agency, and that is the freedom and the responsibility to make choices about all sorts of things. For those of us in Western culture, there's an even higher expectation for young people to to what we call differentiate from their parents and to carve out faith and values of their own. All that to say, not all deconstruction is bad. A lot of it is just normal. It's part of growing up. It's okay to question and, and evaluate assumptions passed down from one generation to the next in a way that, that may even lead to more faithfulness, not less. The most obvious example of this is, think about the conversation over the past 100 to 200 years about racial justice and injustice. See, here in Australia and a lot of Western uh, countries, in former colonial uh, uh, countries and, and colonizing countries. Um, it's taken a lot of conversation in communities and people and of a lot of time listening to marginalized voices and then going back to the teachings of Jesus and the Bible to expose the lies of white supremacy that were embedded in our society. And, and, and generationally over time, we have deconstructed some really bad things that we embraced and now we're better for it. Um, As a pastor, I've sat with people who grew up in really traumatizing communities, um, unhealthy, legalistic ones, and they are still, to this day, unlearning, recovering from what they embraced and what they received growing up. Some of them, their recovery has been by plugging into faithful, gospel centered, mercy loving churches. And others who have gone through, had very similar childhoods, have gone the opposite route and left the faith altogether because it's just too hard. Some people are raised um, in the church with a faith that's quite shallow, um, where we don't have any robust answers for tough questions. That was a little bit Ian's story that we heard earlier. Sometimes we inherit values that look more like the culture around us rather than the values of the kingdom of God. And those case, In those cases, again, deconstruction and reconstruction is a good thing. We can actually rebuild, reconstruct something that's more beautiful, more robust and biblical than what we inherited. So it's not all bad, but then it's not all good either. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it sound better than it is. Because if you were to, like I said, go Google, go on social media right now and search it up, you would come across a mountain, a fountain, a tidal wave, whatever analogy you like, of very well-produced podcasts. Instagram posts, YouTube videos that are designed to capture the imagination and the hearts of people, particularly young people. It's a a movement of people away from certainty, away from any kind of authority invested in the church or in spiritual leaders, away from orthodox Christianity, away from biblical teaching about the body and sexuality. And some are pushing for a move away from Christianity itself, especially the organized versions of it. There are names of many people that you some of you would recognize who at one time were well-known teachers, pastors, comedians, musicians within the evangelical church who have now deconstructed and have rebranded themselves as guides for those who would follow in their footsteps. One of the most famous names of is a former US megachurch pastor called Joshua Harris. Who in 1997, at the age of 19, wrote the popular book "I Kiss Dating Goodbye"? Any of you read that one or heard of it? A few of you. He's later like pulled it from publication and retracted it because it was quite the book was quite damaging to a lot of people. But not only does he did he retract. The book. He later came to retract his own faith in Jesus altogether. Um, he posted in 2019 on Instagram that he no longer considered himself a Christian. And today, though he he maintains a big presence on the internet as a consultant, a coach, and a public speaker. So he's still a pastor, but he's a pastor to the deconstructing. Um, and so for him, the truest form of deconstructing. Is the kind that rejects all certainty and therefore all truth claims of the gospel itself. That's kind of the lay of the land. But I, I want to give you now maybe two of the big questions of deconstructing. If you if you listen to the podcasts, the, the questions that they're asking, raising, kind of fall into two big categories. And uh, this um, these two questions I I got from a guy called Trevin Wax who um, founded the Gospel Project, which is the curriculum we use with our kids here. Um, he said this in a panel discussion. He said, here are the two questions. Number one, is Christianity true? Um, And then secondly, is Christianity good? The first question, is Christianity true, is the question that drove many of the Enlightenment critics of religion from the 1700s up through the 20th century. They looked at, they opened the Bible and saw the miracles, saw Noah's flood, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and they thought, you know, we live in a a day and age of of technology and science. We we simply can't believe those things anymore. We need to, what they call, demythologize the Bible, take the myths out of the Bible, because this stuff cannot be true. Um, They like the morality of the Bible though. They like the golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount, but we just get rid of the miracles. Now fast forward today, and the primary question is more the second one. Not so much is Christianity true, but is Christianity good? How can Christianity be good? with all the examples of abuse and cover-ups that have happened within the church. How can Christianity be good when the Bible can't can't seem to affirm the deepest desires and identities that people feel for themselves? A lot lot of people who are deconstructing today, um, they don't mind the miracles, the idea of mystical union with God so much, but it's the morality that we stumble over. We we live in a world that preaches to us that we are creatures who should not and cannot be limited, especially by powerful gatekeepers of an old religion who want nothing more than just to hang on to their own power. Is Christianity true, though? And, And is it good? These are the two questions, especially the second one, fueling deconstruction today and for some, outright deconversion. So where we're going now is... I hope, going to be some, some good news, some encouragement. And the reason I don't think we talk about this enough is because for, for some of you, this has been a real part of your own journey, or it's been the journey of your kids, or people you, you know and love. You've, you've watched, you've journeyed with a friend who has walked away from faith and walked away from the church community, and it can be devastating to go through personally. Some of you might be wrestling with these questions right now, and so I want to, us to open the Bible to strengthen our hope in what God can do in the midst of doubts and deconstruction and how we can come alongside other people who find themselves in the season of of struggling and and questioning. Because what we're really talking about is learning to press into the love of God and learning to love people by listening to them. And then learning to live out and tell a more beautiful story, a story more beautiful than any of the Instagram influencers or podcasters can imagine, a story of undeserved grace given to sinners who, by an unbelievably loving God. So let me, let me just pray for the rest of our, our time together this morning, and then we'll, we'll get into the word. Lord, thank you um, that you are here with us, Lord. We couldn't approach these things. We couldn't think about these things without your spirit indwelling in us, opening our hearts, opening our minds. So would you do that? Would you help me? Would you help us um, to better love you with our, all of our hearts and, and better love others by, by hearing these things this morning and thinking about these things? And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, last week, as I said, was Easter Sunday. It was Resurrection Sunday. So I thought... Um, since we're talking about um, doubt and deconstruction, it will be helpful for us to have a think and have a look at um, the interaction that the risen Jesus, so after he rose, the interactions he had with many of his closest friends and followers. Because the interesting thing that you'll find, the kind of the common thread through all of the post-Easter stories in the New Testament, the common mood, the vibe There's joy there for sure, but there's a whole lot of doubt. It just colors the entire story. And let me show you what I mean. Um, Let me give you the example in Matthew's gospel. This is right before the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where he commissions, he sends them all out to, to go make disciples among all the nations. Right before that commission, here's what we read in verse 17. It says, when they... This is the future of the church. All of the hope of the church and the gospel is pinned on these, this group of people. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It's right there. The disciples were human beings like the rest of us. They struggled to believe and trust what was happening right before their eyes. And yet Jesus trusted them with the future of the faith. Because doubting does not have to and does not always lead to disaster. In fact, doubting can push us deeper into union with Jesus. The end of Mark's gospel is interesting as well. There it's just the women and the angels at the empty tomb. And the women are terrified, we read, by what they saw. This is the last verse that we know. uh, If you take the shorter ending of Mark, the last verse of Mark's gospel, here it is they went out this is the women they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid the end that that is that that is the that is not the verse of a uh, you know we read that if that's all we had and think oh yeah a great movement that's going to change the world is going to start right here from this group of women and yet that's exactly what happened right but we don't we don't get that by just reading the last verse of Mark. That's why the scribes later came and added the, the long ending to Mark, because it's just not a satisfying ending. But it's the ending that we've got. Um, There's a bit of banter, I think, going about online this Easter season about how the first and best preachers of the resurrection were the women. And I think that is true, um, but we don't make these women superhuman. They're, they're not like the sort of the stereotypical sitcom characters of the, you know, the women that come along, Ugh, you know, look at the men and go, you guys can't get it together, so I guess we've got to take over. That's not. They were human, and, and, and they were terrified in, in, the, in the moment of what they were seeing. They were confused. Everything they thought they knew about Jesus and the ministry of the Messiah was changed in that moment of revelation that the tomb was empty. There's a lot of processing that had to happen. What is going on? And that's why the angels are sent. You notice in the New Testament, every time angels show up, it's because the people are so confused of what is going on. This is really, really hard to believe. I am doubting what my eyes are seeing right now, and the angels are there to help people, to minister to them, to get through that period of doubt. I'm going to spend, and we're going to spend a little bit more time, though, this morning in Luke's gospel, because he gives us a bit of an extended version of what went on in the aftermath of the resurrection. Uh, I will mention John's gospel as well. We're familiar with this, the interaction between Jesus and Thomas, or so-called doubting Thomas. He, he loves and he ministers to Thomas and to Peter, both of whom had serious doubts. But if you look at Luke's account, he gives us some principles, I think, that give us a way forward through these seasons of doubt and ministry to those in doubt. So uh, let me read the text to you. And as you hear it, I want you to notice the way that Jesus loves And leads people through seasons of doubt so I'm in Luke 24 starting in verse 36 we read as they were saying these things this the disciples he himself stood in their midst he said to them peace to you but they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost why are you troubled he asked them why did doubts arise in your heart Look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief, because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. All right. I'm going to point out five things that I want you to notice in terms of how Jesus comes alongside people who are doubting and confused. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus leans in. He leans in and he gets close to people who doubt. After he rose from the dead... He keeps on appearing time after time to his inner circle of disciples and to people who weren't in his inner circle. But the one thing they they all had in common is that they were all confused. They were all doubting that what they were seeing and experiencing was real. They were all afraid, and Jesus keeps coming to them again and again and again, which is exactly how the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us with the truth of the gospel when we are doubting and we are confused and we're afraid. He always takes the initiative to lean in and get close to those of us who doubt. See, there's a big difference between people who are doubting, um, just regular doubts like like this, and those who turn doubting and deconstruction into a brand uh, for money and attention. There are those who struggle because they have been wounded or haven't yet understood the gospel of grace in a way that captures their hearts. And Jesus came to seek and to save people like that, people like you and me. Is it any wonder that Jesus has almost kind of a preference to hang out with people who doubt, who struggle? Luke, he doesn't start here with an argument Jesus shows up and he knows they're doubting and he doesn't say, okay, guys, open your Bibles to page 450. What does he do? He gives them his hands and feet to touch. He lets them hear the sound of his voice. Later on, he sits down and has a meal with them. It's not a power move. He's just showing them in the most beautiful way possible that he really is flesh and blood. He's not, he's not a ghost. He, has, he, he needs to eat, and, and that food is not going to just slide out of his, his body ghost-like. He, he actually has a real body. It's beautiful. Jesus leans in and gets close. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus aims for the heart before the head. He aims for the heart before the head. Um, he asks them two why questions in verse 38. Whenever you see a why question, those are questions directed at the heart. Why are you troubled? why do doubts arise in your heart? I, I don't want you to hear, sometimes we hear those questions and we, we add what we think is Jesus' tone of voice, as sort of frustrated and annoyed. Like, why? What's wrong with you? That's not his tone. He, he's really inviting them in a very gentle, loving way to consider the reason for their doubts. To, he's, he's really going for their hearts in, and, and he's pushing them into deeper union with himself. If you've ever had the privilege of walking with someone who's struggling, you, you, you know that these kinds of questions are, are really helpful. You, you let people examine themselves and then tell their own stories. And listen. You listen to not just for the facts, but for the emotion, the feeling that comes with it. And you listen with the ear of a person who has tasted and seen the love and grace of God in seasons of, of, of our own doubt. Now, if we look at verses 40 and 41, here's a third thing I want to point out. Jesus allows our feelings, our emotions, to outrun our understanding. We read this, "'Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet, but while they were, while, they, while they were still amazed and in disbelief, because of their joy,' He asked them for some food. So he leans in, and he gets close to the doubters in the room, which was all of them, and he aimed for their hearts. He lets them see his wounds up close. And then Luke tells us that even after all of that, they were still amazed. They were still in disbelief. Why? Interestingly, because of their joy. They were so happy to see him alive. That their heads were still just a jumble of, like, we haven't had time to process this, right? Sometimes our emotions do the same. Our joy, our fear, our hurt, our grief, those things outrun our understanding. They speak louder than logic. Well, Jesus doesn't lecture them. He just wants to eat with them. The joy that they had was the joy of being reunited with Jesus. With all sorts of wrong understanding, wrong theology, wrong response to him. And yet Jesus was somehow still okay with that. We have to be a place where people who do not understand the nuances of the gospel can come and eat with us, can be heard, can be seen, can be loved. People who have quirky interpretations of the Bible, people who come with cultural baggage or doubts and pain, sometimes the most loving thing we can do as sisters and brothers is just to sit down and have a good meal with someone, which is what Jesus does here. Because real love in real community is what makes the truth claims of the gospel believable. As human beings, our emotions and our emotional needs often run faster and speak louder than our intellect, and Jesus knows that, and he allows for that, which is why every time he interacts with his enemies, the Pharisees, who wanted to deconstruct Jesus all the way to the grave, he aims for their hearts, like a, like a mother tenderly caring for her kids, fourth thing we see of Jesus is that he does use the scriptures, okay? He allows us our emotions to outrun our understanding, but he doesn't leave our understanding out there in the desert. He does open the, the scriptures, and he, he, he uses the scriptures to shape our theology and our practice. Twice in Luke chapter 24, we see Jesus patiently teaching his slow-to-learn followers from the scriptures. Um, the first time is with the travelers on the road to Emmaus earlier in the chapter. And then this time, in he, uh, he, both times, he takes them on that kind of a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament, proving to them that the Messiah, the promised rescuer of Israel, had to suffer. He had to die and had to rise again. Verses 44 and following, he says, All the scriptures about the Messiah must be and are being fulfilled in me. And he takes them on this tour through the Bible. He opened their minds, it says, to the scriptures which is a miracle, by the way, that only he can do. And I want you to remember that when, you're, when you are doubting or you're journeying with someone who doubts, remember that it's Jesus' work. It's the work of his spirit to open our minds and to open our understanding. Paul said it this way. He said, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, and I preach in weakness and fear and trembling, not in cleverness. He said, that's what the, the hucksters do. That's what the people who make money off of religion do. But not me, not us. No, we preach in weakness, in fear, and trembling. And Christ, through the ministry of his spirit, is the one who opens blind eyes and stills anxious hearts. So your, your friend, your, your, your child, your co-worker who's going through the desert of deconstruction is not your project to fix. He or she is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the creator. And the creator is not finished with that person until one day that person stands before him face to face on the last day. So we have now opportunities not not to argue a person into the kingdom of God, but, but to open the scripture and to seek and discover together, to pray the scripture, to speak the scripture, to let the witness of the apostles be the witness about Jesus. And that's where the power is to save and restore. Not in your words, not in my words, but in his. So, friends, we, we need to stay close to his word. We need to walk in step with his spirit and an open Bible. And that is the power to save. last thing I want to show you here, which I hope it will be an encouragement, is that Jesus does not answer every question. He leaves room for mystery. The disciples who were there in in the upper room there, he tells them to wait. They have to wait in the same place where just days earlier Jesus was arrested, tortured, and killed. And the same people that wanted him dead wanted them dead, and they know it. And Jesus says, wait there. He says... I'm going to empower you. I'm going to send my spirit, but not yet. You need to wait. And they're praying there. They're living in community. They're learning to love each other in this new, new reality, working through their doubts. Luke not only wrote his gospel, but he wrote the book of Acts as well. And if you skip over to Acts chapter 1, we, we have a little continuation of this interaction. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples who have seen him, touched him, they know he's risen. They've heard him teach through the Old Testament. And they come and they ask this question. Lord, are you restoring to the, king, the kingdom to Israel at this time? And what are they asking? They're like, so um, now that you're risen again, now is it time that you're going to start kicking Roman butts? That's essentially what they're asking. They still, after all this time, they still don't get it. They're still confused. They still have doubts. They're, they don't know what's happening. After all that they would witnessed, after everything that he had taught them, they still think that Jesus came to be the political ruler and establish his kingdom and that they would live to see it. But Jesus doesn't tell them off. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't do the the Jesus facepalm thing that you've maybe seen on the internet. He just says, brothers, sisters, it's not for you to know when I'm coming back. It will happen. But you don't need to worry about the date. It will happen in the Father's time, you need to learn what it means to live by faith and, and not by sight. And that's how we learn to hope for the promises, to hope for the better kingdom, the better city, the better body, the better everything that is coming. If you've never sat with well, yourself or a person who is struggling to understand why God allowed my pain, why didn't He answer my prayer? And you can probably affirm three of the most beautiful and helpful words in that moment actually are, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, but I do know who. I know who is holding you. I know who is with you to the end of the age. We don't talk about doubt and deconstruction because it really touches the, 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 the edges and sometimes goes right to the heart of our pain. And some of us think that, you know, like, there's a big rock. You know, this is doubts. It's a big rock. And if I turn that thing over, something is going to jump out from under that rock and eat God. But hope and faith is what teaches us that that's not actually possible. All of our false hopes and beliefs will continue to be deconstructed until we meet him face to face. And we can talk to him directly about it. So for now, talk to, talk to him. Talk to each other. I've, I've, I was thinking of this question, I was just preparing. What, what does doubt actually look like? Um, and I think for most of us, it looks less like the slick podcasts and influencers, and it looks more like the man that Jesus talks about in the parable at the temple who's praying, and he's there, and he's, he's so ashamed of himself that he won't look up at God. He looks down and he's, he's hitting his chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. His main questions right there in that moment it's not, is Christianity true in light of all the intellectual arguments? It's not even, is Christianity good? It's, does God really love me? And I think that's probably the doubt that almost all of us can relate to. I mean, even think of one of the great hymn writers 200 years ago, uh, Charles Wesley. Probably his most famous hymn. Here's the chorus. Amazing love. How can it be? It's a hymn of doubt. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? I I know me. You know me. How? How is this true? You know, if you get the gospel, you'll have moments like that. Seasons of wondering, is this really true? Not just for them, not just in general for the world, but for me. Do you love me? And hear the invitation from Jesus to bring those questions, to bring your pain, bring your sorrow. He tells us to mourn with those who mourn and he tells us, remember the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, what? They will be comforted. See, so when, you, when you do that for yourself, when you do that for others, you are, in those moments, the image of Jesus, bringing comfort and reassurance to yourself and, and to others because of Jesus, who is the very center of our faith, hope, and love. You know, the the book of Jude, one of the shortest books in the New Testament, ends with a plea to have mercy on or be gentle with those who doubt. And that includes you yourself. Don't beat yourself up for having questions, struggles. You run to Jesus and you run to his people with those questions and you'll find mercy and help in your time of need. Not all of the answers that you might want, but mercy. And see, when you embody that kind of gentleness, that kind of mercy towards yourself and towards other people, the story that your life will tell, that we as a church, the story that we will tell together is a story that is far more beautiful and compelling than the story of the skeptics. Because what he's calling us to is not a better podcast, but a better person a person who suffered in the place of every single doubter, so that every single doubter might one day stand in his presence, touch his scars, and sing with joy together with all the saints in glory. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so kind and so patient and so gentle with us When we doubt, when we are overly confident in our own abilities, you love us still. You love us in spite of ourselves, which is the essence of the gospel. Thank you that we did not have to work our way to you. We don't have to impress you. We don't have to um, convince ourselves simply with intellectual arguments, but your spirit is in us testifying to us day after day of the mercy and grace of God. Oh, help us to believe, Lord. Help us again as we come to the table this morning to remember what you did, the sacrifice the sacrifice that you made that we might be brought in to your family, oh God. And we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.